Good morning. And uh, glad to have you here this morning. That was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship. He's one of our pastors. And uh, my name is Brian Habig, if you and I have not met. And I'm another one of the pastors here at Downtown Prez. You heard Jake mention uh, Tim Udodge. He uh, has and still is one of our pastors, but increasingly is more and more the, uh, the organizing pastor, the founding pastor of our very first church plant. That's a new church start for us. First time we've done this called Grace and Peace. It's going to be in the northern part of our city, and uh, God has provided a property for this church plant, which is a real gift. And I mean, it took some money, but it was a real gift and provision that we could do this, that they could have a spot of their own to work with and not have to plan around other people's schedules. So we're excited about this. Please continue to pray for Tim and Rosie, their kids, for uh, this core group of folks. You know, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, even as I'm looking at some of you I love who's going to this church plant from DPC, and it slays me who's going to this church plant from DPC, uh, and which is, I hope, the way it should be. Uh, I love that the U-Dodges are going, and it slays me that the U-Dodges are going. So I hope that's the way it should be. But stay tuned for that, and we'll tell you um, more about things as they unfold. One quick word, though, before I launch into the sermon, launch into the sermon, uh, is last Sunday night we had uh, had a somewhat special event here. We, we had a forum about Southern Presbyterianism and race. And Southern, Presby, Southern Presbyterianism historically is kind of a thing. And I mean, it has sort of an Id- identity and a history to it. And our denomination grew out of that. And so wanted to look at some things and just kind of had to go 100 miles an hour. And I sort of threw the kitchen sink at everybody to talk about our history. But some things we're trying to own and repent of and, and change. But a couple of things about that night. One is somebody pointed something out to me. I really, when I teach, preach, speak, whatever, I try to have my facts straight, and sometimes I get things wrong. If you were there that night, and this is not a big deal, but I just want to be accurate. I made a passing comment about um, Thomas Jefferson, and you may have heard about this, about DNA evidence of him possibly fathering a child with a slave. Anyway, I said it very conclusively, and I've realized it's not 100% sure about that. It it may be the case he did that. It may not. He was a slave owner, and there's speculation that he fathered a child. Anyway, I like to have my facts straight when I talk to you, so just wanted to acknowledge that. I I over-asserted that. But the more important thing is just the big feedback and response I got after that night was just people saying, okay, that was an important night, but even in the night itself, we just were saying, this is a start, you know. This is just a start. So what do we do next? And, you know, um, Jake prayed this, we're praying this. Just please be praying that God would show us how to implement some of these things. Uh, As I said Sunday night, I, I don't even know what I don't know about my racial blind spots. I don't know what I don't know about what repentance looks like. Maybe you could say the same. So let's just be praying for that for our church, that we won't always do and be what we've done and been, okay? So, enough of that. John chapter 15, if you are visiting, just to let you know what we're up to, we're looking at this group of about five chapters of the Gospel of John, and it's sometimes called the Upper Room Discourse. It doesn't all take place in one room, but it's called that because it starts with Jesus gathering with his disciples in this upper room to celebrate the Passover. 
He transforms it into what we call the Lord's Supper. But he just spills out all this teaching. This is the night that later on he's going to be taken into custody. He's going to be crucified the next day. This is just a, a pivotal night for him and for these disciples. So his heart overflows, and he says all this stuff, and there's just a lot to, do, to digest. We're going to be in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. But think about this before I read it. Uh, a, a recurring theme when we're together and we're looking at passages is that the Scriptures redirect and they reinterpret actions that we're already doing. Now, let me say that again. It is a recurring theme that we talk about that the Scriptures redirect and even reapply actions that we're already doing. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Numerous places in the Bible will talk about meditating, like meditating on God's words. Now, if we're not reflective, you know, we'll see that or hear that and think, wow, okay, so I'm being called to do this thing that I don't do. I'm being called to do this real foreign, unfamiliar thing called meditating. And the truth is, we meditate all the time. And I don't so, so much mean like transcendental meditation, you know, I'm sitting in a stance and, and I'm meditating. I mean, we think on things and stew on things until it affects our insides. It affects how we feel. And it affects things that become instinctive to us. That is meditation. Whatever you want to call it, that is meditating. We all do it all the time. Worrying is meditation. Here's another example. Uh, our, like our worship services start with what? They start with a call to worship. That God's Word calls us to praise Him and to worship Him. Now, especially if you're here and this sort of thing is newer to you or, or maybe you've been away from it for a long time, so you're thinking, okay, I've got to like learn this foreign, unfamiliar thing called worshiping. We worship all the time. We present our lives and our energy and our money to, like, honor something or someone or fixate on something or pursue something. Call it what you will. That's worship. I mean, what Scripture does is it redirects things that we are already doing to the right object. And the reason I'm bringing that up is that this passage is going to do that. Like, initially, it could sound like it's calling us to do this thing that is unfamiliar, that's new for us. All Jesus is calling us to do is something that we're doing in all these other places in our life, but to do it toward the right object. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. This is, by the way, the last of the I am sayings in the gospel of John. In the gospel of John, Jesus will say, I am this, I am that. It's really a, a statement of deity. God's name, I am. So this is the final one before he's arrested. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, worship. Thank you for the privilege to get to do what we're doing, to be together and to see each other, to not go weeks and months and years without seeing each other, but to come together over and over and see each other uh, confessing, and to hear each other singing, even to touch each other, to shake each other's hands, to hug each other. But we thank you that we get to hear your word. And we pray that you would give us listening ears. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last summer, I got to go on a fun trip to New Orleans with some friends and uh, had New Orleans on the brain. So I was kind of in the mood to pick up a new book, and I thought, I want to read a New Orleans-y kind of book. And a book I had read way back in the day, I hadn't read it in a long time, is a book by Walker Percy called The Movie Goer. And uh, it's largely set in New Orleans, so I thought, I'm going to get my old copy of The Movie Goer back out and read it. So I read it, and just, uh, I don't know, I just kind of got fascinated with it for a while. So I was looking around online, because that's the best place to find truth <laughs> and accuracy and, and deep reflection. So I was on the internet looking, looking up stuff about the moviegoer. Anyway, I came, up, uh, came across an article from two years ago, or back then, a year ago, in the Atlantic Monthly. And uh, the name of this article is, My Childish, Unhealthy, Joyous Obsession with the Moviegoer. So I was hooked. And the, the, this is a, a guy that writes for different publications based in New York. Was first exposed to uh, the moviegoer, either late high school or early college, and it just resonated with him. And so he just read it over and over. I mean, he said he read it dozens of times, at least annually, but even more than that. And he really identified with this main character named Banks. Now, if you've never read it, Banks, I don't know how to describe him. He just kind of goes through life very casually. Uh, his life is characterized by noncommittal. So he sort of dabbles with women, and he sort of dabbles with work, 
and he's not very serious about much of anything. And he dabbles quite a bit in alcohol. And so this writer says, you know, I began to take on Binks-like actions. And he said, and it's funny because girlfriends don't like that. And as it turns out, employers don't like that. Like, employers don't like when you take a Binksian two- to three-hour lunch and drink a lot in it, and you're unproductive that afternoon. As it turns out, employers do not see that as optimal and don't share the enthusiasm about, you know, your Binks behavior. So he just went through all these girlfriends, and he went through these jobs, and he sort of looks up from this. When he writes this article, he says, married now, I've kind of distanced myself a little bit more from the book. But here's the very end of the article. These are the last sentences. He says, I've crawled so deep into the moviegoer over the years that it's hard to tell where I start and where the novel begins. Have I kept reading the moviegoer because it spoke to something in me that existed before I read it? Or am I who I am right now because I've been reading the moviegoer all these years? The last two sentences. If you spend enough time with a book over enough years, you may start to think it belongs to you somehow. But what if it's really the other way around? And boy, that just jumped off the page at me. That we tend to think that we're ingesting stuff. You know, that we're ingesting books or articles or texts or social media or advertisements or whatever, that we're ingesting them and that we can just kind of stay up over it and manage it. And he raises such a great question. What if you think you're in control of it and what if the words in your life are actually forming you? Now that is right at the heart of this passage. I mean, think about it. This, this is telling and at some level convicting for all of us if, if someone just were, were paid to watch us, study us for some length of time and then try to conclude what words are driving us, what do you think they would, what, would they, what sentences would they understand form us? Like what sentences do we live in and have become formative for us? Like someone might watch us and think, you know what? Here are the words that have formed your life. I must look my best. And that doesn't sound that sinister, but it has a million applications to the point of exhaustion. Or, um, I should be liked. Boy, that's a short sentence that could just wear a person out. But those words form us. And I've used this example before. Again, I'm, I owe it to a, a former community group mate who just sort of said this in passing. Uh, we were having a discussion in community group and somebody said, have you ever noticed how many ads say you deserve? Again, we kind of think that like that, that deflects off me. I, my own thoughts are mine. They're, 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 nothing's getting in me that I don't control. When you have heard over a lifetime, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. Like, we are shocked when we get what we don't want, when we don't get what we want. We're formed. And here is brilliant Jesus saying this. 
words already form you. Every, I mean, even if you can't read, just from things either you've been told or that you've told yourself, there are words that already form you and shape you, that craft your identity. That's not a new thing. But Jesus is saying this, you must live in my words. I don't want you to visit my words. I want you to inhabit my words. And really what he's saying is, I don't want you to visit me. I want you to indwell me. And I indwell you. I want you to live in me. I don't want you to, quote, make me number one in your life. I am your life. I am your life. So let's look at this. And uh, as he's prone to do, he uses a great metaphor to get this across, which you couldn't miss. But let's look at it this way. The principle, the problem, and the practice. And I don't often get the alliteration, so, you know, be excited about the three Ps. Three PRs, I might add. Principle, problem, practice. Uh, First off, the principle. Think about this. Overwhelmingly, the terminology that we use for people who follow Jesus, who profess faith in Jesus Christ, is the word Christian. And that word is hardly used in the New Testament. Like, hardly at all. One time it's an adjective, so that, uh, that doesn't even count as much. It's not even a noun. So, what is the language of the New Testament for somebody who believes in Jesus Christ, follows Him, is saved by Him? And overwhelmingly, the language, and that this is used a lot by the Apostle Paul, but he didn't, he didn't start it. In this passage, you can tell who started it. Overwhelmingly, the language is of someone being in Christ, in Him. Now, this is theological, and I I find it extremely hard to get my mind around. And I won't even pretend to say that I, like, understand it. I believe it and see something about it, but at some level it's mysterious. Jesus says this. I am the vine. I am the vine. Now, because we don't know the Old Testament that well, we can kind of fly past that. But when he says, he doesn't just say, I'm the vine. But what did he say in verse 1? I am the true vine. Why did he say that? And what he's drawing on is what we would call the Old Testament, what the listeners would call their Bible. And this is an old metaphor. It's in the Psalms, especially Psalm 80. If you ever read Psalm 80, it's in the prophets. But God will use the metaphor of the vine to describe his people. He talks about, I took this vine out of Egypt. What's he talking about? The exodus. The departure from Egypt into the promised land. I took this vine out of Egypt and I planted it. I gave that vine everything that it needs in this beautiful promised land. And I stepped back, <clears throat> I stepped back, anticipating this good fruit, and the vine did not produce good fruit. That's the story of the prophets. That's the story of Israel's history. So when Jesus says, 
I am the true vine. Here's what he's saying. I am what Israel should have been. If you want to see what it looks like, he's saying, I am, which is a head nod to his deity. He's saying, I am the true vine. If you want to see what an obedient Israelite who loves God's word and who lives God's word, who loves God and loves others, if you want to see what the vine was supposed to look like, I am the true vine. And here's how alive I am. If you are attached to me, you'll live. Your natural condition is not alive. But if you are attached to me, you'll live. Apart from me, you'll have no life. In me, you'll live. Um, I brought some show and tell. I don't do this very often. I know some of you must have looked at this and thought, if that's their greenery for decoration, the church may need to, you know, knock it up a few notches. No, this is not, this was not like uh, decor. This is from a vine in our backyard. Now, my understanding is that at some point this summer, Greenville went from drought to our actual status is extreme drought. The Haybigs have a sprinkler system in our front yard. It looks, it's hanging on. Our backyard doesn't have a sprinkler system and is a brick. Is a cooked, baked, hard brick. Okay, I cut this this morning. It looks incredible. You know, like these other plants that we're working on and watering and trying, like, you know, they have yellowish spots and this is not right and bugs have eaten it. This, the thing that we haven't worked on at all looks fabulous and is thriving. Where did I cut this from? This is a shoot from a vine in our backyard. It's not a fruit-bearing vine, but it's a vine. That thing, let me place this back in its place of decor. That vine in extreme drought with no help on our part is so alive, it's sending out other stuff that like thrives and grows. I cut it, what, two hours ago. It's still green. And Jesus says this, I am so alive, I have all life in me. If you're in me, you'll bear fruit. And you know, when I use that language of bear fruit, then you kind of be like, eh. It's just not a metaphor that we use a lot. But if we talk in terms of, man, I would love to see real change in my life and to have a meaningful presence in the lives of those around me. You know what you could just call that? Bearing fruit. Like, wouldn't you love for the people who know you best to look at your life now and then look at your life, if God spares us, a year from now and say, you are so much more patient than you used to be? That would be fruit. He he goes on to say this with the metaphor. Um, I am the vine. My Father, God the Father, is the vine dresser. If you're attached to me, and now this is just a, a, a yard vine, but think Middle East, their surroundings, vineyards, grapes. If you bear fruit, my father, the vine dresser, will prune you so that you'll bear more. Now just, okay, 
stop for a second and think about this. Think about just, if, if those images were all we had, think about that kind of language. Abiding is an active verb. And Jesus gives that imperative over and over and over in this passage. Abide, 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 over and over. Abide in me, abide in my words. I abide in my Father, you need to abide in me. If you abide in me and you bear fruit, my Father is going to prune you so that you bear even more fruit. Do you already get the sense that stagnation can't really exist when you're connected to Jesus? And that's a sobering thought. Because, now, this is disappearing. But in the church Bible Belt, there are those that you know are growing Christians. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you could look and say, like, okay, whatever a Christian is, that's one right there. That person is. I can see it in his or her life. There are those who are not Christians. I don't want Jesus. I'm not into Christianity. I don't want church, all right? But, but there's what's been called the mushy middle. And that's rapidly disappearing in our day. Good riddance. But this is the place of stagnation. Jesus says, if you are connected to me, you are alive. If you are connected to me and in me, you will bear fruit. But my Father's going to intervene in your life. You know, pruning is not the, like, happiest <laughs> metaphor. I, I, do we want the sight of God the Father heading toward us with shears? No. But it's love. Like, I, okay, I know. I know you're bearing the fruit of patience. But I know how to make these surgical cuts, and you're going to become a more patient person, maybe in ways that you can't believe right now. But you're going to have to let me handle you. But this text seems to indicate stagnation is not an option when you're connected to Jesus. So what's the problem? And when I say problem, put quotation marks around it. I don't think there's a problem with the Bible. But in in a way, I mean, there's there's kind of a theological dilemma, a theological problem. All right, go back to verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, listen to this part. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Very convicting. We can't phone it in. We can't wing it. If we're connected with him, we can bear fruit. If we're not, we can do nothing. But then get verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, when you read that part, verse 6, that sounds like, okay, Jesus is describing those who believe in him and those who clearly don't. The people that believe in him, their branches in the vine, they're going to bear fruit. And then these other people saying, I'm not interested in it. Okay, you're a human being. You're a branch. You're disconnected from him. You'll, in the judgment, you will be thrown You'll be gathered. You'll be burned. That's not unusual for us to hear that in Scripture. Whether you agree with it or not, that's as old as the Bible itself. But then go back up to verse 2. Here's the quote problem. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. But get that first part. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, are you feeling the theological problem here? Because something that's a big deal in the Bible and something that we very much believe in as a church is that if God saves you, you stay saved. If God saves you, you stay saved. Once saved, always saved. In fact, just a few chapters back in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, look, if I've got you, nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. If my Father's got you, nobody's going to snatch you out of my Father's hand. Please hear me. that We're not backing down on that at all. But here's, here's let, me, let me change the inflection. Once saved, always saved. And something that shows up in this passage and that shows up in all kinds of other passages is that you can be in the institution that's identified with God. You can be in the institution, in it, that's identified with Jesus, which is called what? The church. And still not be connected to him. Let me go back to my yard for a second. Back in June, took some time off. Uh, we got to go out of town a little bit on a trip, but had a few days of staycation before that. Love staycation. Got to do some yard work during staycation. So this is when the yard was only half brick, so it was mildly enjoyable. But I couldn't believe Okay, this was June, and I found in our yard a branch from our Christmas tree. And it was still green. And it still smelled like a Christmas tree branch. It had been detached from a living tree for at least half a year. And it sort of like it looked green and sort of smelled Christmassy. It had been dead for half a year. Now, the analogy is not perfect, but like you can be in this institution called the church, which is the bride of Christ. And you yourself not be connected to Jesus. Dana's been reading a book about George Whitfield. Um, amazing man. Lived in the 1700s. He, wildly influential on both sides of the Atlantic. And especially when he was in England, he'd preach anywhere to anybody, preach out in fields, his voice would carry for miles. But he would preach in churches. And a lot of the people that he was preaching to were people in the Church of England. And, and the resounding message was, look, even if you've been christened, even if you've grown up in the church, you must be born again. You must be connected to Jesus. It's not enough that you're in the right institution. That's a blessing to be in the institution. But you must be connected to Jesus. And I think, you know, before we go any further, that's the question that we need to ask while we're together. Do you know that you are connected to him? Because being a member, maybe being a longtime member of the church, does not equal connection to the vine. 
One of the first passages in the Gospel of John is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was in exactly the right institution. He was in Israel. He was circumcised. He went to temple. He wanted to obey the Torah. He wants to meet with Jesus. And Jesus looks at somebody who is just right smack dab in the right institution and says, if you are not born again, you won't even be able to see the kingdom of God. He's saying, you will have to be connected to me. Are you? Look at verse 3. This is the second time Jesus has said this in this discourse. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, you can be a member of a church and never believe verse 3. But wouldn't that be wonderful if God, by His Spirit, was at work on you, even right, like, even right this minute, to give you belief finally that that could be true, like that those words could form you. Do you, do you now, I, I'm, I'm running this through a very theological template, but do you understand how much we kill ourselves because we don't feel clean so that we'll feel clean? And you can do it with money. You can do it with competence. You can do it with looks. You can do it with fitness. You can do it with anything. Something to make me feel clean and valuable. And Jesus says, you're clean when I make you clean. And I'm telling you, if I make you clean, you're clean. He's saying this to men. He's already predicted, you're going to abandon me tonight. and say, no, we won't. And they do. And he's telling them, you're clean. All of us need to be connected to Jesus. We need the church. I believe in the church. We're planting a church. But we cannot phone it in and feel good about it just because we're on the, member, we're on the, the rolls of a Christian church. You must be born again and connected to Jesus himself to be in him and for him to be in you. Well, what does the practice look like? Um, the, the, this description is incredible. What Jesus says, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, here's what your life looks like. Let me show you three places. Look in verse 5, the second part. After he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Look in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish. It will happen. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, all this stuff about abiding, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If that's true, then here's the thing. What we say that we want comes through abiding. 
Now understand, I am not saved by my ability to abide. Only God can save us. Only Jesus can save us. And yet, this passage is loaded with active verbs. It's loaded with imperatives. You know, a husband and wife are one. They don't rise to the occasion of being one. A husband and a wife are one flesh. But you know what? You can be one flesh and you can live like two individuals. Or you can be one flesh and live out of that and appropriate it. Live not as two individuals, but live as one flesh. Appropriate it. Jesus is saying this, you're already clean and you're already connected to me, but you need to appropriate that and flesh it out and abide in me. If you do, the life that you say that you want, change, impact, meaning, answered prayers, joy will happen. Somehow, I stumbled on this, uh, this video, again, on the internet where I find most of my, my truth, uh, and it was a video by some guy that's like, you know, trainer to the stars. And, you know, he helps actors and actresses get ready for roles. And it, it was whoever uh, got the cast for the Avengers physically ready for, for that movie. So, um, you know, the guy plays Thor, got him ready, and, and Scarlett Johansson and all that. Anyway, just, you know, he's talking about his approach to fitness. But one thing he said, and this is like one of those things where as soon as I heard it, I went, oh, that's, that, that has to be true and I hate it is he says, I tell all my clients, if you want to look amazing, you have to eat amazing and sleep amazing and train amazing. He said, that's the three-legged stool. And of course, as soon as you hear that, you go, I know it. I know it. Because what, what we want to be the case is that, like, okay, so I see the ad of the man on the elliptical machine, and what I want to believe is that I can still eat southern lunches and southern suppers and southern desserts but if I will get on that elliptical machine three times a week I will look like him no no we won't we won't like first off we'll never have his skin tone they found a guy with great skin tone and his lunch was probably you know smoked fish and avocado and lemon water it wasn't what I had He's eating amazing. This is like the easiest thing physically he does. He's doing interval training and horrible things that I don't even want to, I, that I don't even want to talk about from the pulpit. He's doing all that stuff. He gets eight hours of sleep a night. And yes, he comes with these great genetics too. So yes, he looks like that. Um, here's the tension. Once saved, always saved. If you look to Jesus and he makes you clean, you're clean. You stay clean. You're resurrected clean. But if we would have this kind of joy, if we would see God like work through our prayer life in a way that we haven't seen before, if we would sense real closeness to Him and change in our lives, we need to read amazing. We need to memorize. We need to talk with others about it. We need to process it together in worship and then come up to the, the visible word and taste and see. But we don't have to stagnate. 
We don't have to stagnate and then be angry at God that I don't feel right. We may abide in him and his word and we may bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you don't leave us to our own devices. And this is a mystery for us. Holy Spirit, we know that we we can't even have the impulse to live in Jesus' words, to internalize them, to meditate on them, to chew on them, to live them out. We can't do that unless you work in our lives, but you call us to do this, to be intentional, to go after it. So would you give us abiding? Would you give us pursuit of you? Father, if anyone's here who maybe is even on the rolls of a church, maybe this church, but is not yet connected to the vine, would you let them hear you saying, come to me? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.